multiple vaccines to combat COVID-19 have been approved or are under investigation in clinical trials. When discussing COVID-19 vaccination with patients, pharmacists must balance providing factual information with patient perceptions of the vaccine. This podcast will focus on recent safety updates regarding risk of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome observed with viral vector vaccines. This exploration into the nuances of the available viral vector vaccine will present potential increased convenience of the single dose regimen with reported safety concerns of thrombosis with thrombocytopenia alongside updated guidance and recommendations. I'm Dr. Jim Lewis, Infectious Disease Clinical Pharmacy Supervisor at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. The Pharmacy Podcast Network and Nation really prides itself in partnering with organizations who are bringing us educational content, but it needs to be interesting and it should be. We received a lot of feedback from our listeners, 75,000 plus listeners now throughout the world, even though we're concentrating on um, on the United States. And one of our partners, PTCE Connect, um, which is through Pharmacy Times, has really provided some amazing conversations on relevant topics of today. This is no different. We're going to be diving into adverse effects versus convenience of the COVID-19 viral vector vaccines. And this is dedicated to our pharmacists out there who are in the thick of it. You guys are the frontline providers and you're our heroes. And we're excited to bring on to the podcast today, uh, Dr. James Lewis. He's a PharmD. I can't wait to jump into this with you, James. Uh, Welcome. Well, thank you very much. I think it'll be a good time and certainly a very timely topic today. So multiple vaccines uh, to combat COVID-19, J&J, AstraZeneca, um, I know Moderna, yes, the, the, I think that was the first one, but we have so many things taking place and we have lots of public um, distrust of different things that have happened over the last 10 years, especially in politics and influence and in different things that are happening. When it comes to medical information, when it comes to healthcare, pharmacists are being seen 10 times more than their primary care physician. They're kind of like the right hand of the, of the primary care physician. And with that comes an opportunity for pharmacists to really set the record straight. So the public can finally have trust in certain aspects of their healthcare. Vaccines are really at the forefront with this pandemic. So I'm really excited to jump into this with you, uh, Jim. Can you describe the type of blood clots associated with the J&J vaccine, which has actually made the news recently? Yeah, you know, I think this has been, you know, really the the side effect that has popped up with not just the J&J vaccine, but also with the AstraZeneca vaccine um, that I think has really kind of, you know, put 
the most um, you know concern, I think, of probably any of the side effects that have been reported out there. But I also kind of want to back up right there and you know and reiterate that I think one of the things that is most impressive about this set of vaccines that we currently have available to us, the two mRNA vaccines, as well as the two um, viral vector vaccines with the viral vector vaccines, both being adenovirus based. And you know you have the J&J &J vaccine as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine. And when you look at those four as a group, I think one of the things that really pops out is how strikingly impressive the safety profile is of this group of vaccines. And I think, too, it's so important for us as pharmacists to reiterate to you know, any of our patients who are concerned about safety in this space, how well the monitoring systems have worked in the United States and elsewhere, and also how how the phase three registration data that we saw, which really suggested minimal um, risk of adverse events, has really borne out. You know, I mean, you got to stop and think about how many millions of doses of these vaccines we've now given, not just in the US, but also globally. I mean, we're clearly up into the hundreds of millions of doses now. And, you know, I think it's really a, a major shout out to the monitoring system that we have in place that an adverse event such as this thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome that we have seen pop up with both J&J &J and with AstraZeneca have been recognized and recognized quickly. You know, and I think this is, you know, one of those adverse events that is extremely unusual. And one of the things that we've seen with these, these situations and with this syndrome in particular is I think one of the reasons that it really kind of jumped off the page is that, you know, it's such an unusual event to see in otherwise young, healthy individuals that it really kind of grabbed our attention quickly. And, you know, I think it's, again, a real testament to how well the vaccine safety monitoring network has worked on these products, that it was recognized as quickly as it was, and it was addressed by the FDA um, as well as the ACIP in a very timely manner. And so, you know, really it's, I, I think the thing that makes it really kind of unusual is when you start to get clotting events like you do here in a situation where you're seeing thrombocytopenia at the same time. And I think this is, you know, a, a character or a disease state that looks a lot like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which is something, you know, all of our listeners out there are probably familiar with as pharmacists. And the mechanisms appear to be very similar. And some of the treatments that are being proposed appear to be very similar as well. So I want to back up for a second too, Jim, and really give some relevance, which was why I was so excited to bring you on in this conversation, specifically this conversation today. And that is your background in infectious disease as a clinical pharmacy supervisor with Oregon Health and Science University. This is special because you have an, an, an opportunity to expose to our future pharmacists much of what's happening, it couldn't be more relevant than it is today right now, as we're actually talking right now and, and our listeners are listening to this podcast. Give us a short um, introduction about yourself and in, in your work in infectious disease. 
Yeah. So, you know, I've had the pleasure of, you know, being an infectious disease pharmacist for about, gosh, more, more years than I care to admit now, which is uh, going on a little over 20. Um, you know, I've currently been at Oregon Health and Science University for the last almost eight years. And prior to that, I served in a very similar role at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio for about 13 years. Um, so I co-direct the antibiotic stewardship program here, uh, as well as serve as the infectious disease uh, clinical pharmacy specialist for Oregon Health and Science University on the adult patient care side. Bravo. That's awesome. You said something that perked my ears. I want to jump into this. Almost 8 million doses of the J&J vaccine alone have been administered throughout uh, the world, throughout the country. So what is the incident of blood clots uh, within that, within those, that data and that, in those metrics? Yeah, you know, I think that is one of the the kind of frustrating things is I don't think that we know the exact incidence at this point in time, but I think what we can say, if you go back and kind of look at some of the safety data that was released after uh, the CDC and ACIP reviews came out, is that it really kind of looks like it's about one case per million doses administered. Now, those numbers move around a little bit. Um, kind of depending on which age group you look at. And again, I think that's why what you see in kind of the recommendations from the FDA, uh, as well as ACIP, are for, in particular, that we need to be looking at women between the ages of 18 and 49 and discussing with them the potential use of other vaccine platforms such as the mRNA vaccines in those individuals and making those individuals aware that there are other vaccine options for them because that appears to be the group where the incidence was highest. And this kind of mirrors what we've seen in data from other parts of the world where the AstraZeneca vaccine is more in play, uh, where we've seen kind of similar things pop up with regards to this being a phenomenon that pops up seemingly in younger women. You know, Jim, I think of um, many facets of, of healthcare today and the education that's been brought to me personally and to our listeners from pharmacists has been amazing. I share many of these publications and the, uh, the audio um, insights of pharmacists on my own Facebook. And I get comments from family members that are like, wow, what type of patients are at the highest risk for, uh, for clotting? Yeah. And so I think, you know, when you look at, you know, and one of the things that we need to really kind of distinguish here is, are we looking, you know, at risk for kind of clotting in general, or are we talking about, you know, who seems to be at the highest risk of clotting with these vaccines? And I think those are kind of two separate questions. And really kind of when you look at folks who have historically been at the highest risk of clots, you know, it has typically been folks who have other, you know, multiple other comorbidities. Um, we've also seen in the past historic history of, you know, use of birth control, other, you know, other things kind of out there from a from a medical standpoint, which kind of put some of these folks at risk for clots. And I think that's, again, why this was really kind of caught so early is that the, these clots were appearing in, you know, individuals who really had no other usual risk factors out there for hypercoagulability. And so I think that's kind of what pop, caused it to pop off the page at the safety monitor 
numbers. And that's kind of why we've seen this risk, you know, be addressed specifically in those women ages 18 to 49. I really do wonder if as we kind of see this move forward, we may see some of some more reports in kind of some of these more classically um, concerning folks for, you know, clotting events, because I wonder if in some of those individuals, maybe it's just not reported as much, because again, folks can come up with other reasons for it. So it's really kind of an interesting dynamic, and it puts us in really kind of an interesting spot when we're trying to kind of drill down who's at highest risk and what the numbers actually look like for incidents here. This is really valuable um, for those pharmacy owners that are out there who are doing vaccines. We're hoping that you'll uh, use some of this information uh, to to make your patients feel safe. They they have uh, concerns and they're looking to pharmacists to give them, um, you know, the, the the truth and and the the risk that is is posed and and the risk that isn't there. So. I wonder, Jim, so what does the risk actually look like when we start peeling back that onion? Yeah, so you know when the, when you say, all right, what is the risk, right? I mean, when you go back and look at these numbers, it's it's striking, right? On, on the, some of the worst scenarios that you see in the numbers are, get this, you know, one incident per 500,000 doses of vaccine, right? So kind of step back and kind of think about that incident, right? That is a very, very, very small risk. And again, that really comes back to, and you know, patients have had this question, well, why wasn't this seen in the clinical trials? And again, the reason it wasn't seen in the clinical trials is it's such an unusual event that it's impossible for any normal sized clinical trial or any clinical trial that's ever gonna be done to pick up an adverse event that's that rare because you're just never going to enroll that many patients. And I think that's really the take home when you're talking to your patients is that this is an extremely unusual event. And we're providing warnings to individuals who maybe are at a slightly higher risk, but it's still a very uncommon event. And I think that really that needs to be viewed against the backdrop of how convenient it is to use this single dose vaccine seen in a lot of patients, right? There are a lot of individuals out there who would very much like to be vaccinated and a single one and done dose is a very appealing concept to them. Not having to come back for a second dose, individuals who maybe really don't like needles and don't want to get stuck twice. You know, again, I think there are groups out there where because the risk is so low, the benefit of this one and done vaccine really cannot be underestimated. Absolutely. Jim, I was supposed to give blood two weeks ago for my annual checkup, and guess what? Uh, I'm two weeks late, so I, I don't like the needles either. I got to get it done. <laughs> I don't know too many people who wander around going, please stick me with a needle, right? <laughs> exactly. So who does well with the J&J &J vaccine? We know that um, we've heard stories that people that take it, um, they, they feel kind of crappy for maybe 48 hours or 24 hours or something, but who does well with this? Yeah, you know, and, and I think, you know, to take kind of the back end of that question, you know, they, the people who complain about feeling kind of crappy for 24 hours, that's a vaccine, right? Yep. And, you know, I think it's so important for us, you know, when we're administering these vaccines to patients or talking about these vaccines with patients to remind them that, you know, basically that is your immune system and your body kind of looking at this vaccine and going, 
hey, wait a minute, and you shouldn't be here, and is generating an immune response. And that's exactly what the vaccine is supposed to do, right? It's supposed to generate that immune response so that basically if the real deal shows up, your immune system is already kind of up to the task and is like, hey, you shouldn't be here, smash, right? And so it really, you know, is not at all unexpected for people to feel a little jagged, you know, for 24, hopefully not out to 48 hours after the vaccine. And really, if you look at the safety data across kind of all of these vaccines, it really is kind of that one day of symptoms, you're going to feel a little funky, you may not feel, you know, terribly great. But again, really, it appears to be with all of these vaccines that the younger individuals who get these probably probably because they have a more robust immune response, are really kind of the folks who are at highest risk of kind of feeling cruddy for about 24 hours. When you really kind of look at some of the older groups there, it's, you know, it does appear that the incidence of kind of that uh, after vaccines really comes down a little bit. And that really kind of fits with the experience that I've had uh, in talking with patients who have had these vaccines administered to them. So I think that's really important. The other thing that I think is important and, and I just want to deal with right now is, is there are still, unfortunately, from what I'm hearing, individuals out there who are telling individuals not to take acetaminophen or ibuprofen after they receive a dose of vaccine if they feel cruddy. I think it's so important for our listeners to recognize that, you know, that recommendation is for prophylaxis, right? You don't want people coming in and prophylaxing ahead of time with acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Nowhere in the literature is it being said that you should not use those to ameliorate kind of the funk if you get that, you know, post-vaccination. And, and one of the things I worry about the most, right, is if we let patients walk around out there going, oh my gosh, I just felt like garbage after I, you know, took that vaccine. That's not exactly positive reinforcement for their friends and family to want to get vaccinated, right? So I think making use of those agents for individuals who do get that kind of 24 hours of feeling cruddy is perfectly reasonable and actually something we should be encouraging. The other thing to kind of come back to the start of your question is, who's great for this vaccine? We kind of touched on this a little bit already, right? Individuals who are not in that 18 to 49 years of age group who are not female, I think, and, and really just want the one dose, you know, and are like you and don't want to, to come back in a couple of weeks for another stab with the needle. I, I really think this vaccine makes a ton of sense in those individuals. And, you know, even I've got a, a very good friend who is, you know, in her early 40s and even understanding these risks, you know, she understood the incidence of the risk and how rare it was. And the single dose vaccine really appealed to her from a scheduling and a quality of life standpoint and whatnot. And so she, she very much understood the background here and still elected to receive the J&J &J vaccine. So I, I think there are multiple groups um, where this can be very appealing. And you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is how easy this vaccine is to work with from a storage requirement standpoint, as compared to the other vaccines that are out there that are a little bit more fragile and a little bit more demanding with regards to some of the storage criteria. So I think there are a lot of folks out there who still can be considered for this vaccine and for whom that single dose, one and done, is awfully appealing. Absolutely. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so uh, in wrapping up, this has been very special. This has been great information. What would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacist listeners listening in right now? 
Yeah, I think the single most important takeaway for our, our pharmacist listeners right now is who the high risk group is. Again, remember it's that women age, ages 18 to 49, you should be having this discussion with them prior to administering this vaccine to them. That as well as you know the reminder that the incidence of this thrombotic event is you know, even in the quote unquote higher risk group, still very rare when you look at the actual numbers. And I think that's really important for our listeners. Jim, I thank you so much for participating in today's podcast episode. A shout out to our pharmacists out there, specifically our infectious disease uh, pharmacists. There's a group of you out there on Twitter that's just amazing to watch you work and in in collaborate with each other with the information that you're sharing. Jim, this will be part of that content that we're going to start sharing from PTCE Connect. And um, I'm I'm very pleased with this interview today. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.